So I want to now dive into our series. I want to talk about our message for today. We're continuing on in the series, 12 Words, where we've been looking at 12 essentials of the spiritual life. We've been looking at them through their opposites. We've been looking at them through the box of junk, spiritually, that we pack on top of what faith is meant to be. We've been looking at the things that over the course of our life, we just got to unlearn, unclutter, throw out to get back to the basics. 12 essentials of what spirituality was supposed to be. And before we get to our word today, I actually want to show you a trailer from a movie that I saw about a month ago that just got lodged in my head. It's this movie called Free Solo. Has anyone heard of this? If you, you're about to be afraid if you haven't. Melanie has. So Free Solo is a movie about Alex Honnold. It's a documentary. And he is considered one of the top free soloists in the whole world. If you don't know what free soloing is, it is the act of climbing mountains without any gear, pretty much. It's rock climbing without ropes. You just have shoes, your clothing, and a bag of chalk. And they just go. And it's insane. And see, what the documentary covers is Alex's preparation and climb of a cliff face called El Capitan. It is the largest cliff face pretty much in the world in Yosemite National Park. And he climbs it, and it is a feat of athletic marvel. It was considered historic in the, the rock climbing community. It was impossible. And I can explain to you why, but I think it's easier just for you to see it. So we're going to run the trailer, and you'll get a sense of this. Yeah, file that under all the nopes that I've ever had in my life. <laughs> no, thank you. And this movie fascinated me. Because on one hand, it's exactly what you'd expect. About half of it is someone doing something that you're like, you probably should not be doing that. But the other half, I didn't expect. See, the other half of the film actually spends a lot of time exploring why Alex does what he does. The film shows more of Alex than just his climb. It actually tries to cover the journey he's been on, the journey to unpack and grow beyond his past. You see, Alex had a rough childhood, childhood trauma, social disconnection, emotional attachment, and neglect, loneliness. And the film shows how these experiences actually shaped this drive in him, this obsession, this need to be perfect. That is the only reason he's able to do what he does. You see, it shapes in him a drive for perfection physically and mentally that if you don't have up there, when one slip, one misstep, one mistake means you're falling through the frame, as they say, then you can't do it. And the film does an excellent job of showing how this journey till now made him do the impossible. But it also captures, in my opinion, some of the stories he got from those experiences that aren't so good. They show how he faces and names and grows beyond some of the damage done. How he learns stories of isolationism, of emotional detachment from the people around him, and even his own life to some degree. About self-centeredness. It's about me and what I want to do. And at other times, escapism and obviously thrill-seeking. I think that one's clear. And the film literally shows you watching this person over the course of these years as he prepares grow beyond so many of those things in his relationships, 
in his interviews with the camera. It's just this gut-wrenching, honest movie. And that's why it stuck with me. Because I felt like at the end of it, I actually saw a person deeply in a way that I don't usually find in movies. I started out being like, why would anyone do it? And by the end, I'm like, I kind of get it. And it also challenged me to consider my own internal story. The ones that drive me, seen and unseen. See, I believe as human beings, we all have these stories inside us that often sit between us and how we engage our world. We have these stories grounded in past hurts, failures, wounds, that ultimately end up becoming filters in terms of how we engage a present moment. And what I looked at when I saw Alex's story were the two ways that we can deal with these often in our lives. On one hand, we face them, we name them, we come to see them in ourselves. And in doing so, we're able to hear, heal from them and ultimately repurpose them. See, what Alex showed me is that sometimes if we could see these stories, they end up strengthening and helping us because we're able to learn to examine, reclaim, and redeem our past journey through a journey of self-discovery and growth. And they actually help us do the impossible. But I also saw that on the other hand, we can end up carrying these stories without ever knowing they are there. That we can go throughout our life, we can pick up these wounds, these experiences, these traumas, and they create little stories in us. And when we fail to fully see them, what happens? They sit below the surface until a trigger comes along. And suddenly they come up, the story starts to play, and the rest of that time, we are filtering the present through the past. Has anyone been there before? And maybe your stories don't push you to climb mountains, but trust me, we all have them. I think it just comes with being a human being. And I think that their impact on our life is almost entirely determined by the work we do to see them and change them. And that is what leads us to our box today. See, we're going to talk about the box of ignorance that we need to unpack through self-examination. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean it in the way our culture does. I mean it in terms of an ignorance of ourself, an inability to see the stories that we're playing out in our lives and our inability to interrupt them and stop them. And when I say self-examination, what I mean is the process and practice of daily, rigorous, and honest self-reflection. I think it's an essential practice for spiritual life because without it, I believe we cannot learn to see these stories, to catch them, to interrupt them, to redirect them before they've run their course. See, I think when we do self-examination well, we actually can do work in the present to prevent these internal stories from dominating our future. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to explore the move from ignorance towards self-examination through a text in the Gospel of John. And it's one that has captured Christian imagination for hundreds of years. And it shows us both the need for self-examination and the danger when we leave that box of ignorance full. It's a story about Jesus, a woman caught in adultery and casting stones. Now, as always, I want to start with some context before we jump into the text. Chapter 8 in John is right in the middle of what I would dub the conflict chapters of the Gospel of John. You see, what Jesus has been doing 
is he's been traveling around and he's been getting into trouble with the religious elites. In fact, he's been taking Jewish symbols of their religion and reorienting them around himself, thus claiming authority over these Jewish religious rituals, which has gotten him in trouble with the people who for hundreds of years have seen themselves as the gatekeepers of said symbols and rituals. See, these religious leaders, when Jesus confronts them, and he says, no, I'm the Messiah, I'm the long-awaited king, I have authority over these things. Well, rightfully so, they take that as an undermining of their position in society, their power, their security, some of their deepest beliefs, even their identity. And by the time that we get to our story today, this has bubbled over into public debate. Jesus is coming into contact with these religious leaders, and he's having these debates on what his authority is, what he's allowed to do, what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And this is actually a pretty common thing in the ancient Near East, philosophical and religious teachers coming together for the minds of the people. But our story marks a shift in the tone in Mark's gospel. You see, up until this point, it's been largely philosophical. And yet after this point, it becomes direct conflict and challenge on the behalf of Jesus. In other words, after this point, Jesus takes the kid gloves off. And his language, because some of the most harsh critiques you'll read in any of the Gospels, literally accusing these people of being outside of what God is doing in the world. And I believe that he does this because of something to do with our box today. Namely, the danger that Jesus sees as coming with a failure to unpack the box of ignorance. That's where we're going to go. We start in John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the laws and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now there's a lot going on here, so let me set the scene. Jesus has been teaching and debating for several days now in the temple. He's at this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a huge religious celebration. And he has been approached by these groups already. We see it's a teacher of the law, or you might see it translated as scribes. This was a religious legal clerk. Basically, they were charged with interpreting the law. And then you see the Pharisees. This was a popular religious sect at the time. They usually get a bad rap for being legalistic which they were, but in Jewish context, what they really were, were there were people who strongly called Israel back to the law of God. And Jesus comes into conflict with their legalism over and over again in the story. And this is no exception. So there's nothing out of the ordinary about this interaction, about them approaching them as he teaches. But what they do is out of the ordinary. You see, they bring before Jesus and the crowd a woman caught committing adultery, presumably during the festival celebration. And they ask him to make a legal ruling under Old Testament law. Basically, they ask Jesus to interpret biblically what they should do with this person who has broken the law of God, which doesn't seem too strange. He is a rabbi. He is a religious teacher. Seeking out his interpretation on the Old Testament makes sense. And yet, the author gives us a clue that there's something else going on here. 
If you notice, he says that this isn't just a matter of interpretation and discourse. In some way, it's a trap. In some way, their motives are a little more insidious. That somehow these religious leaders are using this woman in her case as a ploy to entrap and accuse Jesus of doing something wrong. And we're like, how? How is that even possible? We have to know Old Testament law to get what's going on here. You see, when you know Old Testament law, the law of Moses, there are some serious legal irregularities going on in how this is being carried out that leave you with one conclusion. This is not in good faith. The first thing, when you look at the text, is the way they bring this legal case to Jesus is all wrong. You see, adultery in Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, was a capital punishment offense, as in you would be put to death if you were caught in it. And if you had any of those charges brought to you, the normal order of events would be they would seek out religious interpretation because it's serious. They would pull Jesus aside privately, not publicly, and they would get his interpretation and then they would take it to court and we would have due process. Do you see any of that taking place here? No. See, they bring the woman into the temple in front of an entire crowd, shaming her in the process. And then they ask Jesus to make a ruling right then and there. Now, they're not interested in due process, are they? They're not interested in justice or legality. This is far more a mob execution. And they're trying to trap Jesus right in the middle of it. The second thing I would point out is that the law of Moses said something very clear. That if there was a serious accusation brought to someone legally, you needed a minimum of two witnesses for them to stand trial. To protect people against false accusations and legal cases, you had to have at least two people who saw the same act at the same time in the same place with the same account. Did they bring any witnesses with them? No. They just come before the audience and just say, she did it, what are we going to do about it? This is a dramatic breach of Old Testament law. Which means that they are both showing neglect for God's law and by asking Jesus to make a ruling on it without proper evidence, they are asking Jesus to break God's law. All while claiming that they're fulfilling their duty of upholding the law. And finally, the last clear injustice taking place is the judgment itself. You see, in Old Testament law, again, it was clear when adultery took place, both the man and the woman would be brought to trial. Is the man anywhere found in this story? No, only the woman is brought before the crowd. What I would say is they apparently let the man go because they didn't need him, because they aren't actually interested in justice in this case. You see, what they've done is created a pretty clever, if not insidious, trap to undermine Jesus' authority publicly. They bring before him a case of life and death, a case that he will either have to rule that this woman be put to death through strict observance of the Mosaic law, or he has to exercise authority over Old Testament law and forgive her sins and let her go, which they did not think he had the right to do. In other words, 
they believe in their mind, he will either have to go against the mercy and forgiveness that he has been teaching by putting this woman to death, proving himself to be a fraud, or break the law of God in front of an entire crowd of people. And altogether, despite what they say in their requests, their actions and their intentions include no real interest in the law, in Jesus, or the woman's case. These are merely foils, tools, objects for their real singular focus, entrapment, and blame to shut up this person that they have come to see as their enemy. And the moment freezes. What is Jesus going to do? Well, he does what Jesus often does. He does something incredibly bizarre and quite masterful when you understand what's going on. We read further, Jesus, sorry, but Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. He starts doodling in the dirt. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is one of my favorite moments of Jesus in the Bible because it's so odd. He is in an intense philosophical debate with a life on the line. And what does he do? He starts playing in the mud. Like, what is going on here? And over the course of Christian history, our first instinct is to say, what did he write? That's got to be the answer. And honestly, despite all the interpretations I've heard, there is nothing in the Bible that can answer that question for us. The truth is we just don't know definitively. We make a lot of guesses, and there's a lot of really interesting possibilities. You know, I've heard people teach that it was a quote from one of the prophets from Jeremiah about the names of those who oppose God being written in the dust. I've heard people connect it to the the law in Exodus about being a malicious witness. I've learned people mostly teach, they delist their names and their sins, thus showing their hypocrisy. And these are all exciting, and it's fun to debate about it and to talk about it, but when it gets down to brass tacks, nothing in the text can give us a definitive answer. And that's because, to some extent, I don't think it actually matters. You see, I believe It was the act of writing itself that was the most important part. See, like I said, in the ancient Near East world of Jesus, public debate between philosophers and religious leaders was common. They would get together and they would battle it out. And one of the things that you could do to show complete disengagement with an argument was to write or to draw in the dirt while someone else was talking. This is ultimate disrespect. See, we can relate to this today. Let's say you and I have been going at it. We've been fighting. And you come and you're like, I've got him trapped. I know the perfect argument. You start laying into me and I just start. Do you feel like you've been heard? Do you feel like I think what you're saying is valid? No, you see, this was a strategy for showing someone how little support or value you believed their argument had. It was reserved for the worst, most flawed arguments in a public debate. It was a way of saying, what you are arguing is so obviously wrong, I'm not even going to give you a response. And when in frustration, the religious teachers press on, he stands up and hits them with one line and then returns to his disengagement. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
You see, Jesus' actions and response show a complete disregarding of the validity of their question. He basically says it's too flawed to even acknowledge it as valid with a counter-argument. To respond would give legitimacy to something that is totally and utterly illegitimate. And with one line, he shows us why he sees it that way. He says a line that shows that in his view, their worldview concerning sin, judgment, their own righteousness, and their present action and intentions invalidate their position entirely. With one line, he lays down a crushing challenge of self-examination. And I think it hits home in two ways. I think in the first way, he challenges them to examine their past and judge themselves by their position in the present. He says, how would a trial go over the worst thing you've ever done if it was handled in this way? If it was public, if it had no witnesses, if there was no evidence needed, if it was just accused and be put to death, how would Jesus rule in that trial for you? And how should that change how you view the outcome of this trial? On the other hand, I think he challenges them to examine their intent, the internal story that is producing their actions. See, they brought this woman before Jesus, claiming their divine duty of upholding God's law. And yet, what have they clearly and decisively violated in their attempt to trap Jesus, in their denial of justice, in their lack of witnesses, in letting go of the man? Jesus holds up a mirror and shows them and their actions in that moment are actually defined by a story that they can't even see, one that is well underway. It is a story of fear, humiliation, anger, pride, resentment towards Jesus. That's the story that's driving them, he says, not your love for God and certainly not the values you claim to be upholding. He seamlessly asks, you would attack a human life and break God's commands to get your way. Shut me up, and then you would have the gall to tell me that you're acting in God's will. And with that, he goes back to writing on the ground. The Old Testament, ancient Near East way of saying, next, I'm done with you. And one by one, they leave. We read in verse 9 as the story closes. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So they leave one by one, the wise first, uh, that was the older first, that's what it would have meant, the wisest in the crowd, and then everyone else follows them. And only the woman remains. There's actually some really interesting stuff here that you might have missed. Did you notice that this is the first time anyone addresses the woman directly in the whole story? This entire trial about her with her life on the line has been swirling around and everyone else has seen her as an object until this point. An object in their game, an object in what they are trying to do to Jesus. And Jesus, when he addresses her with the word woman, actually in Greek, you know, in English that sounds gruff, but in Greek, it's a word of respect. Jesus, later in the gospel, uses it for his mother. It's a way of showing sincere care. 
See, what Jesus does in that moment is he says, I see you as a human being. And they have found no way to judge you, and I'm going to relinquish any right to judgment I might have to. But he does invite her and challenge her to change. He doesn't ignore that she was guilty. That's actually not really up for debate in the text. But he does show that in the kingdom of God, there is a new way of doing things and a new path forward. There's this new reality of radical grace, the relinquishing of judgment. And that new reality, Jesus is saying, gives us a new opportunity for beginning a new story. It's freedom that leads to something new. Like, no wonder this story has captured Christian imagination forever. It's beautiful. It's like the quintessential Jesus story. But I actually want to take some time reflecting on what this story tells us about that move from ignorance to self-examination. Because I actually think it has some deep truths to show us. First, when I read this story, I find that when we fail to do the work of self-examination, we just end up spiritually stuck missing out on what God is doing in the world. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to defend what they've always known. This understanding of sin, judgment, punishment, death, it's just the story they've been taught. It's a story that they've always held on to. It's a story that they've gotten their power from. It's just the story that they've internalized. So, of course, when they perceive someone as attacking it and attacking them, it's fight time. There's only one problem. When these stories play and we don't see them, the cost is clear. They miss out on something new, on a better story that actually is playing out right in front of them. They have been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come, for God to act. And when he's right in front of them, they end up missing it because it's not the story that they thought they'd be living in and that they've always lived in. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. I have held stories over the course of my entire life that have never once helped me, healed me, or led me to grow. They've just the story that I've always held, and they just play on and on and on. One of mine, for example, is abandonment. I don't know about you, but at some point, I learned that there's something so fundamentally broken in me that there's no way people could love me. So that when people would come into my life and try I would just assume they were going to find something and leave one day. So I just expediated the process. I pushed them away. Do you think that left me stuck? Or how about this one? I learned from our society, I don't know, that to be a man means to never be afraid. There's only one problem with that. Fear is a natural human response. So you know what I learned? I learned to funnel fear through anger an appropriate emotional response for men. So every time I got afraid, I just denied it and blew up. Think that might have left me stuck? Not being able to process my reality as it is, how I felt in a given moment? And there was these opportunities that came to me more than once. If I would just do a little self-examination, just ask myself, what story are you living in right now? But I couldn't do it. And I just got stuck. And I just stayed ignorant to why I did 
what I did. And the story went on. The second thing, though, second truth, is that more often than not, I think our box of ignorance is actually something that other people ultimately end up paying the price for the most. See, I don't believe that the vast majority of wounds are caused by cruel intention. I believe they are caused by a lack of consciousness. I believe that they are caused by people who are unaware of the internal story playing out in a given moment. They're ignorance. They don't know what they're living in. And there's just one problem. See, when we live in stories that are in our past and not the present, that means they're detached from reality. And if our story that's playing on its own is not connected to reality, then reality can't slow it down, which usually means that the people in front of us who have nothing to do with what's going on inside us get run over and get pushed out of the way until that story stops. See, I don't think the Pharisees woke up that morning and said, you know what would be fun if we used a human life to undermine all the values we hold in this world? They weren't like, gee willikers, wouldn't it be great if we just broke God's law? No, I think that they were caught up in an unseen story of fear, of insecurity, of humiliation, of pride, resentment, and retaliation. And when they saw this woman they didn't see her as a person because that story just saw an object that they could use to win that fight, to make the crisis stop. And everything, their values, their beliefs, their position just became tools for that story running its course. You see, I think for most of us, this box of ignorance is full of stones, whether we want it to be or not. Something comes along and it triggers whatever that story is and just naturally we lean towards lashing out or running away. And when we don't seek to be aware of these stories, without meaning to, we often plant a stone in our hand and between the stimulus and our response, that thing is flying. The only problem is it's usually at the person in front of us or the person who triggered it, not to our eternal world. I mean, this is so human. I think when I am ignorant of what's going on inside me, my hand gets full of stones. I mean, let's go back to the abandonment one. It's really romantic to say, well, I couldn't receive love, but it's not pretty in reality. In reality, what it means would be good people tried to love me, that story started to play, and I bailed, which comes out as using and hurting people more often than not. Some of the deepest wounds I've caused in this world from casting that stone. Some of my biggest regrets. Or how about the fear and anger one? Ever had, like I said, ever had someone who's just mad at you and you don't know why? So I get scared, I get mad, I blow up. Do you think my marriage suffered for that? Obviously. Obviously. Each case before I cast this stone was a story moment of unawareness, a moment in where I'm stuck or hurting someone else. So what's your stone? And what's the story? See, because I believe that we need to know the answer to those questions because this story is trying to change that story. It's very subtle, but did you notice that everyone in our text today actually is given the same invitation, but in a different way? 
They are all invited into a new life, a new story. And all they have to pay is transformation. The Pharisees and the scribes are invited to use self-examination to look at how their old stories are shaping how they respond in the present and to change it in light of what God is trying to do. When you look at the woman, she's invited to use self-examination in the present to change her future. Accept the story of grace today and go forward to a new life. I believe that unpacking this box by practicing self-examination allows us to learn all our stories, all of our beliefs, all of our thoughts, all of our actions in a given moment, past, present, future, through the filter of Christ, the filter of love, and the filter of grace. And what I have found is that I come out the other side of that filter a better person and a little bit more like him. But it's only possible with daily, rigorous, and honest self-reflection. Not a one-time event, but as a regular process and practice. And if you don't know where to start, let me give you one. This is a tool that I use. And it's something that if you just try for five minutes an evening, just check back in in a couple months and see if you're a little more self-aware. You start by sitting down and getting quiet at the end of your day. And just become aware of God's presence in that moment. And in all the moments of your day. God, you are here because you were everywhere. Next, review the day with gratitude. Just three things. Thank you, God. If you have nothing to say, thank God for breath. Because that was never a given. Next, review your day thinking of any moments of high emotion, stress, fear, anger, crisis. Where did you get to that next level? And then reflect and examine if during any of these moments you cast stones at yourself or at someone else. Where did your response not match the reality of the situation? Someone did something small and you responded really big? That's a story. Any moment they cast one of those stones. Next, choose just one of those moments and pray for it. Just invite God into it. Say, God, help me heal. Help me let this go. And finally, you close by looking towards tomorrow. You let it go and you say, God, can I just do a little better tomorrow than I did today? Because that's what the spiritual life is about. See, I have found that my practices like this have fundamentally changed me. I have found that it has helped me at times catch the stone before I throw it. The story comes, the stimuli triggers it, it starts to run, I cock my arm back, and I go, what am I doing? And it doesn't leave my hand. And I thank God for new awareness. More than that, though, they have actually helped me not pick up some of those stones at all. They have healed me to the point that the story just doesn't play anymore because it's been so radically changed by grace. And I truly believe that when we grow in our ability to know ourselves, to know why we do what we do, we are invited by God into a story that lets us change, repurpose, and redeem our past stories, both in the future and in the singular moments of our life. I think it frees us to do amazing feats. 
It might not be rock climbing for you, but quite frankly, some of those long-held wounds and stories might feel like climbing mountains when you start to deal with them, don't they? And they're amazing nonetheless, because I know, I know that if I told myself just three years ago, Mike, you're not going to be as afraid, as angry, as dreading abandonment as you are now, I would have thought any movement in those areas would have been a miracle. It's possible. You just got to do the work. And that work, I think that process starts with a choice. You see, I I know it's not a one-time event. I know that it's a lifelong process and practice, but I think we have to choose to begin to open this box and to empty it and to get rid of those stones. So maybe what I would challenge you with to close is this. Go into this week. Try to catch yourself in one of those moments in which you are outside of reality. When you start feeling that desire to scapegoat, to yell, to hit back, to run, to judge. Take a breath. Stop. Try to reground yourself the present. And in that moment, I would give you the same mirror and the same statement that our Messiah gave us, our Lord, our King. Let ye who is out sin cast the first stone.